Welcome to episode 36 of the Camera Shake podcast. As always, this is the podcast where we talk about anything and everything that's got anything to do with photography, making photos, making photography, or making videos, actually. We talk about that occasionally. We do. We cool. occasionally. Um, this week, we've got a number of things. Um, obviously, if you're listening to the audio version of this uh, of this episode, um, it'd be great if you could head over to YouTube, maybe click subscribe. That would help us out. We are trying to reach 100 subscribers because at that point, we can give our channel an actual name. <laughs> at the moment, it's called something random. And uh, we want to change that. So we need a few more subscribers. That'd be super awesome. Even if you're not into the YouTube thing, but if you could head over there and just click that subscribe button, that'd be awesome. Um, also, we are now on Instagram. It's at Camera Shake Podcast. Hit us up over there too. And uh, the whole Twitter thing, and you know how that works. So without further ado, let's get into this episode. And for today, we have a very special guest. For today, please welcome Mr. Moose Peterson on the show today. Moose, how are you doing? You okay? Hi, guys. I'm doing great. How, for, how are you folks doing over there? We're cold and wet. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, indoors too. <laughs> you know, it's kind of amazing. We uh, There's a lot of uh, ups and downs to this whole uh, current situation that's facing the globe. One of the things I think is kind of a positive is that more people are reaching out using technology uh, and borders have disappeared. And I, I kind of like that. So I, I'm, I'm grateful for you inviting me to come on. Yeah, it's uh, it's you know, it's one of these things. Um, of course, you hear people very often talk about the negative side effects of you know the whole um, twenty twenty pandemic and everything. But um, the reality is, and I've mentioned this many times on 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 this podcast, is that we wouldn't even be doing this podcast had it not been for the pandemic, because mm -hmm. you know we uh, found ourselves with well, not much to do, <laughs> you know, at the end of March. And so we figured, you know, might as well, uh, you know, start a podcast. We because we had thought about this. Um, maybe six months prior, or maybe like even mm -hmm. a year before. And we were talking about the general idea. Um, and, you know, life's busy. So one thing happens and you just don't get to it. Um, and so eventually it was time to uh, to get started. It was. Yeah. You know, I can, I can really empathize with that for a lot of uh, folks. A lot, a lot of my good friends are urbanites for lack of better terms they they live in an apartment a condo a home with not a whole lot of boundary around it and when you are a shut-in more or less yeah structure can make a big difference yeah it, was, it became you know it really became a really important um part of like our, our weekly lives really you know and um and originally of course we couldn't even you know, visit each other. So we couldn't, you know, mm. be in the same place when we started the podcast. We had to actually film ourselves and talk to each other via Zoom and uh, cut the whole thing together afterwards. Um, you know, now at least it's, you know, at the point where we can be in the same room together, um, which which makes, it makes it a little bit easier. It does. You know? It's what a way to start a podcast as well. You know, the hardest way to do it is not be in the same room. Yeah. 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 And, you know, we like had to figure out how to do it really uh, to start with. We didn't really know how to, how to how to i don't know we didn't know how to podcast <laughs> yeah but we had to just figure it out well my great my question runs through my mind is once life gets back to what we were similar to before and we could kind of walk around and be social again how many bad habits that have you know couldn't flourish because we couldn't be close to each other will come back and how many good habits will will take over and uh what the change will be I'm really curious to see how we as as people or photographers 
evolved through all of this. Yeah, that's true. I think there, you know, there are a lot of things um, that, I, if only if you ever know, speak for myself, really, um, there are a lot of changes that that I've made um, or that we have made as a family. For example, like we've we've gone down from you know having two cars to just running one car, and we sold that and bought a hybrid. So. <laughs> Yeah, um, you know, because uh, because we realized that actually we didn't need all of that. You know, we didn't need to run two cars. We didn't need to have that impact on the environment and, and everything else. And so, you know, um, it's you know we, we've we've already kind of made changes to our life. So when we come out the other end, um, these 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 changes at least are going to be permanent. And I know it's the little things, but um, but it's it's had a massive effect. Coming back to the podcast just for us doing this every week and actually speaking to other photographers in all sorts of different genres of, of photography has been incredible. Like what a learning experience that's been you know, for us. Yeah. Um, excellent. Excellent. You know, and, uh, and, and getting, you know, getting people um, to come to show like yourself, is just, you know, it's a real pleasure. Um, and, you know, we wouldn't have, well, we wouldn't be doing this had it not been for, for COVID-19. So um, it's important sometimes to see the positives in 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 something that could otherwise be extremely depressing. <laughs> yeah. Mm-hmm. yeah. And those those that have been successful, I think, are those that have um embraced the change, if you know what I mean. And those that have, you know, adapted their business and what they do to be able to continue, at least in some capacity. Um, you know, a number of our guests have started doing a lot more online, as you can imagine, um, a lot more training type things, a lot more one-on-ones. So just to to your point, me. So I do wonder whether those photographers photographers who have introduced those t- type of um, sort of areas to their business, whether they continue to do that when we're back to normal. Um, I don't know. I really don't know. It's going to be very very interesting to see. Hmm. What impact has uh, has the whole pandemic had on on you? Like, because you're in Montana. Right now, right? I'm in Montana. Yeah, we live up here, and we moved to the ranch in April. Uh, during the middle of the pandemic, we moved. So, right. <laughs> um, the uh, to be quite honest, I, we feel very fortunate and almost kind of guilty in the fact that the pandemic really has not adversely affected us. It has changed some things. In that, for example, we're in a new place, and we wanted to go out and. And we have some really great neighbors, but going out and doing summer neighborly things, we could not do. But as far as as we are concerned, Sharon and I and uh, Maggie, our, our little puppy, you know, we're here on the ranch. We kind of have um, it all right here. We, it's, so it's not uh, still shooting as much as ever, not doing as much aviation because for a while, um, that was kind of closed down a little bit or slowed down by the pandemic. But really uh, for us, we've been, like I said, very incredibly fortunate. We've been able to keep moving the, the ball forward and an online presence and podcast, like we've already mentioned is something that's, you know, I've had a, I've been ahead of a website now since 1984. Uh, back when you had to literally use uh, the notepad on the windows and you would type in HTML tagging and, and all that. And you had a book, so you'd look up. And I, I remember all too well, um, I've always greeted people with the word howdy. That's just the way I am. So my very first website, you know, I remember putting in the tag to make it big and red and then make it blink. 
Mm-hmm. And the first people would go there, they go, you know, that's the most obnoxious thing I have seen. <laughs> Leaking howdy. <laughs> uh, I was so happy because I figured out how to do the HTML tag just to make yeah. it go blink. Um, so a lot of that stuff we now take for granted, uh, but that's just the fun. And as far as I'm concerned, the, what's really the cool challenge is to embrace change and make it yours. You're, you're really um, like this, you know, you're a real trailblazer uh, blazer when it comes to um, embracing change. I mean, um, you know, for those uh, viewers or listeners who don't know, but you, you were really the first wildlife photographer to embrace the digital medium per se. On the planet, yeah. And um, Sharon and I uh, broke down a number of, of walls and walked through a number of doors with publishers with, you know, digital files. You know, there was a brief period of time where we would take our slides and we would scan them. Back then they were called electronic files. And that was more or less kind of accepted because it was being done in the publishing houses already. But to take a file already electronically and, and that's created with a camera and putting it on a printed page, that for about 18 months was, you know, a real barrier. And we were the only ones on the globe that took advantage of that and started working with publishers. And then in many ways, uh, it pushed our business to a whole nother level. I remember this um, sort of briefly, because I really only started to get into photography sort of semi-professionally, I guess, at the time, um, when digital photography became the thing, you know, or it had already been the thing. Um, obviously, technology wasn't quite as advanced as it is now, but, um, but I think you know, it, it was digital photography was definitely very accepted at that point, and it was I think it was accepted generally that was going to be the future. But I remember people, you know, just before people saying, "Oh, digital photography that's going to be the death of photography" or something like that, you know, and uh, and it's like how many times have I heard that since? Yeah, <laughs> you know, about everything and anything. Yeah, it's it's um, as a as a, a group, uh, photographers are don't really embrace change with a very positive attitude. There's a lot of skepticism to it. It's just our, our nature, I guess. Yeah. So you're also um, you're also a Nikon ambassador, mm-hmm. and you've shot you shot Nikon for a very long time. So you stuck with that brand since. How long have you shot Nikon for? Um, I have shot Nikon. I have to think about the moment. It would be since 1980. 1980. Mm-hmm. It might have been 79. I'm pretty sure it's 1980. Uh, yeah, you know, it kind of goes back to what we were just talking about. Uh, my cousin, who's a, a real smart guy, um, back when I was a little kid, had a Nikon F. So that would have been back around 63, 64. And we looked across the valley, and I could see this, this object way across the valley, big in the viewfinder. And that just kind of like cemented the Nikon uh, legacy in my mind. And, and it's... You know, people always ask, why have I stuck with Nikon? Uh, Two main reasons. One, Nikon has stuck with me. Uh, And two, Nikon has always had the flash solutions that I need uh, to be a visual communicator. Mm. A lot of people don't realize I can't really walk and chew gum at the same time. So working with a subject and dealing with flash, um, it needed to be a system that was clean and simple and produced the, the light that I wanted it. Nikon still provides that. So it was not really hard to, to, to be a Nikon ambassador. I just love the stuff. 
How long have you been a, an ambassador for Nikon now? And um, what brought that about? Yeah, well, um, ever since the program started, and I don't know, is that nine years, 10 years now? And uh, I just got the phone call. I mean, I distinctly remember sitting on the on the deck and, the, and Mike called uh, a really dear friend and, and another, he's a great shooter on his own, called and invited me to be in part of the program. Uh, to be honest with you, I don't know why I got invited. I didn't like do anything other than just kind of what I do. And, and obviously it has to be my photographs because it sure can't be me and my personality because sometimes it doesn't work so well. So, um, you know, if you love what you're doing, right, and it comes through your photography, it affects everything in a positive way. Everything from just you looking at your images to your clients that keep coming back and asking, you know, for more images. It's it's part of the process, which has peaks and valleys, but you just, if you're creative and you have passion for it, you just keep working through all those. Do you, in what way do you think the, like, generally... Um... The, the sort of industry has changed or, or let's say this call it the business of wildlife photography if you want to call it that in what way do you, do you think that has changed since you know since since you first started or like since the 80s or 90s um that's a pretty darn good question how's it changed well the industry is a kind of a reflection of the world and in, in itself right i mean it's because we're visual storytellers. The most time we're going out and telling a story that's in front of us rather than creating a story. So when it comes to wildlife photography, it has had constant peaks and valleys. And right now, wildlife photography is, is getting up to one of its peaks again. And what I mean by that is there's a period of time, and it's probably happened half a dozen times so far in my 40 years, where wildlife photography just wasn't popular with most photographers. So when most photographers are not shooting, then there's a real need for those photographers who are. And then when it's hitting a peak, there's a lot of photographers out there. And, and keep in mind, there's some really phenomenal wildlife photographers out there that people don't know about. And that's partly because of the photographer's fault. They're not sharing their images enough. They're not in getting involved in the business enough. But there's a lot of really excellent photographers out there. And there's still the market for that, the problem is, at least in my opinion, is that a lot of photographers in the last few years have really gotten caught up in the instant gratification where you, you post it and you get all this love from people on different platforms. The problem is that that love, while it's instant, doesn't pay bills and it often does not instill um, Solid craftsmanship and business, professional business practices. So that's still kind of lacking. The editorial market is still out there. It's still a place that's looking for more and more uh, content. And this past year, with more and more people stuck uh, literally at home, the need for that content has really increased. The photographers filling it has not. It's an interesting void. Uh, so that's kind of the scenario that's been going on for 40 years that I've been into it. We have lived forever, it seems like, in the editorial world. 
This last year, I have slowed down a bit because doing other projects, but it's still out there waiting for people to, you know, basically embrace their fears because a lot of people just don't like to be rejected. And that's why I think so many embrace the platforms online. Because rejection anymore is just figured out to be a troll, you know, and mm. so it's kind of like blown away. But when you send it into a photo buyer at a, you know, some sort of editorial content, those those people know what they're talking about, right? And that's where I've learned so much of my uh, photography skills is those people communicating and saying, you know, this works, telling the story, and this this don't work. And the don't work means you don't get a paycheck. And if that's how you are making your income, like we are, you listen and a lot of people are afraid of that rejection rather than embrace it. Within within rejection, there's always an opportunity to learn. I think you know that's that's if one thing that, that if you open if you, if you step through that door, a lot of people are afraid to ask. Hmm. I mean, in all honesty, when you're a creative, whatever your genre is, be it you know music or writing or photography, and you you put your heart and soul in something, and then somebody stomps on it. You got to have a little bit of cojones to say, okay, ah, why did I suck? And then listen to that and then embrace that and then remember that next time you go out. That's a lot for a human being to deal with. That really is. Isn't it, isn't it funny though when, um, you know, he, you get rejected and then maybe a couple of years later, you look back at those shots and you think, yep, I can totally see what they were saying back then. Absolutely right, because because as as a as a creative, you also develop over time. And of course, you know, and and I know this because both uh, Nick and me have a background in music. And I remember, you know, when I was a kid, and I was like learning how to play the guitar. You know, I would practice something to the point where I thought it sounded really great, and then I would record myself. I would put the tape in a shoebox and listen back to that tape six months later, and what I thought was like the best thing in the world. When I recorded it six months later, it really sucked. It was uh, <laughs> terrible. Then, of course, you know, you develop and your ears develop, and and over time, you can you get that uh, that sort of um, that you know you get a little bit more objective, and you can take that step back and listen to it um, with different ears, and then you realize actually it wasn't so bad, it wasn't so good. Um, and I can see that with photography as well. I recently looked here, back, but here's the good thing about that, right? People always you know are worried about either you can say burning out early. Or, you know, somebody says you're the greatest, but you got to realize that you're not because you just look back at your own product like you just talked about. You realize that, you know, tomorrow you're going to be better. Doesn't mean you're going to be substantially better, but you'll be better at what you're doing as long as you keep right foot, left foot. And yeah. So in a year, you're going to be better, too. And that makes everything that you photograph brand new because you are now bringing a new person to that photograph compared to just maybe days ago. Yeah. You know, again, you're coming back to where we started this conversation about, you know, starting up new things during um, a time like this pandemic. Um, and, you know, as part of this is, I think, I mean, this is certainly true for me. And I think I can speak for Nick um, um, as well is that through, you know, through speaking to, to different photographers, um, it's motivated us to try different things and mm. to try new things. And, you know, we've, like the learning experience has been immense. Like we went to a place called Brighton, which is a, a city by by the coast um, yesterday to do some street photography, which is not something that we normally do, but we thought, yeah, it's a nice day. Let's do it, you know? 
And uh, and it was it really was a learning curve. Right? It, was, it was a learning curve, and God, it was fun learning. Yeah, it was you know? fun. <laughs> it was super fun. It's, and that's what people forget is it's fun to learn new things. It's fun to get feedback from someone and implement that feedback. You don't necessarily have to agree with it up front. And you may not, particularly if you're quite protective and, you know, hey, hey, you've got a bit of pride going on there. But just try out what they've recommended. Mm. If you still don't like it, okay, that's cool. That's That might be partly a taste thing. It might be that you visually or if we're talking about music, you know, using your ears, you can't quite hear that yet. But you will. You will try it again in six months. And this is it. But Moose, one thing I wanted to, wanted to ask just while we're on this on this topic is, you know, a lot of our, our listeners and, and viewers may, um, you know, might might be pro, might be semi-pro, but a lot of them will be hobbyists as well. And, you know, using, you know, things like Instagram to just post their, their work. If you were to give those photographers one piece of advice right now about getting their work out there and not just getting the, the love, so to speak, from um, your followers and whatnot on Instagram, what, what, what would you say to those people to do? That's a really uh, great question. It doesn't have, as far as I'm concerned, a simple answer. No. To be honest with you, um, you know, when it comes to sharing your photographs, it's a real personal thing. And if you're sharing them because you want to tell a story, then in that process, you'll grow as photographer. If you're sharing just to make an impression or get likes, I don't think you grow as a photographer. Not not very quickly at the very least. So the sharing has to be because as far as I'm concerned, you want to thank the person looking at that photograph for their time. That's how I, when I, I, I post something verbally, you know, in, in, in text in a photograph is I want to say, thank you for taking time to, to stop and look. And in that you're going to get something out of it, be it, small amount of pleasure, a little bit of information, um, combination of both. So uh, the, the process of sharing a photograph has to come down to being one that's selfless. It, to me, it has to be one that is strictly all for the viewer and not for you, the photographer, if that makes sense to you. A lot of sense. Yeah, I think that's absolutely. a great way of looking at it. Yeah. Um, I'm not sure a lot of people do quite look at it that way, but so I hope people take that on board because that's, that's great, great advice, great yeah. info. It's also always, you know, you, you come across this discussion or this debate as to whether, um, you know, wh whether whether one should share phot photographs or, and then, you know, the whole kind of uh, copyright discussion comes into it. And I know from like listening to your, uh, your podcasts um, and listen to your speak, I know you're, you're really a proponent of, um, of really sharing um, photography, you know, in general. So, um what would you say to people who like who like worried about the whole you know copyright issue when it comes to like uh... well you know photographers always have something to worry about right i mean <laughs> the list is the list is huge <laughs> and you have a couple of options you can worry about those things or not um copyright uh, infringement it's happened to us uh, more than once uh it's part of the business and do i worry about it no not really, I, you know, to what end, right? What end? If, if, you, if you are worried about copyright, then it means all your photographs are going to stay locked up in a hard drive. Mm -hmm. so then, as far as I'm concerned, you might as well just collect coins. 
because they're just going to be shiny things in a drawer that no one gets to see but you. Uh, to what it kind of to, to, on the same kind of thread, but opposite is there's so many photographers I, I out see doing, you know, out doing photography and doing things as far as I'm concerned are totally egregious to the, the critters or the environment. And those people do those things and then they still don't share the photographs. So then what's that point? You, you gotta, you know, it, it comes down to, to the photographer and really what floats their boat. For me, uh, I am incredibly, incredibly fortunate. I get to go to places that I wanna go to and see things that I have a desire. And if all things work out, I come back with a click or two that I can share and share that location, share that that moment for people who more likely won't have the ability to go do that. So I think right off the bat, because I'm so fortunate, that needs to be shared through those images and copyright. It happens. Uh, it doesn't happen very often. Uh, you know, I, I I'll never forget watching John Oliver, and all of a sudden there goes a, my picture of a southern or Alaska sea otters on the screen, mm-hmm. and I'm like, uh, hey, that's my picture. <laughs> yeah, wait a minute. <laughs> and I was sitting there, and and they didn't hadn't gotten permission to use the picture. It all worked out; it wasn't a big deal. But you know, I'm in the in the at the time I was in a hotel room with our oldest son Brent. We've been we're working on a documentary, so we've been filming all day and had just taken five seconds. Everything had uploaded. We're going through, it, and that came on, and. I remember Brent, my son going, wow, you're, you're kind of calm about all that. And I said, hey, you know, it's happened. It will happen again. And sent out the email and, and it just, things move forward. You could either get really upset or you just realize that if you share and per, as prolifically, especially like I do, that it's going to happen. You just deal with it. And it's just another part of the business. It's a, it's a, it's a, I think it's a risk that you knowingly take, you know, when you, when you post your photographs on Instagram or Facebook or any any of those platforms. This there's just that um inherent risk that somebody might see it and use it for, for other purposes. Um it's a bit like my wife always says that she doesn't like what people say on Facebook and I keep saying to her, Well, why are you in face- on Facebook? Then you have a choice <laughs> you have a choice. Just don't be on it, you know? <laughs> Wherever. But uh, talking about your uh your wildlife photography, um that's you know, I really want to get into that. Because you really dedicated your life to um to education and um, and the, the protection of of the of the what do you call it like the, the wild heritage, yeah. Um, and uh, and you've been doing that for a long time. You've been to many places, um, and you've been part of many uh, biological uh, projects. What, what would you say is like your like your what was your proudest moment? Um, being part of, of any of those kind of things. It was over a period of time. There's a, a spot in, in the California Central Central Valley that has a lot of teeny species. And I was very fortunate to get in with a, an incredible group of biologist researchers. One of my, my mentors is part of that group, uh, Dr. Williams. And it was right when digital was coming through, you know, the uh, so a lot of of the, the my proudest moments, if I'm mean, the proudest moment, is when my name was uh, added to uh, 
the recovery plan for the Central Valley as one of the contributors. And for someone who has no education, formal education, like in you know, college for biology, to have been able to glean as much as I had from being in the field with these biologists and stuff and be able to contribute because of my anecdotal collection of information through my photographs and then be cited in that paperwork, um, it kind of meant that everything I was working for and still work towards actually had some merit. So, but a lot of people said, you know, what got me asked, what got me started in this whole track of working with our teeny species, which I still do, but not to the same extent as I did uh, for about 20 years. And I started off, it was one of those kind of classic mom stories. My mom ran a nursery school. One of her uh, kids' parents was a biologist, became friends. This is right when I was starting off wanting to devote my life to wild photography. I started off brief period of doing fashion work and then thought maybe I should, you know, do landscape, realized that both those were totally not for me. And I'd been working with critters and been a bird watcher since I was nine or 10 years old. So wildlife photography, life just kind of unfolded and, and that's how I should be it. And this biologist, he lived where my mom was. I was two hours away up in Santa Barbara. He said, oh, I have a friend, contact him. I did, Maiden sat there, said, we need a volunteer to, to, to monitor nests for a little bird called Lee Spells Vario, which back in the 1800s was a dirt bird. It was, there was, they were everywhere in California. It wasn't like you had to look, they were everywhere. And at this point, uh, it would have been 18 or 1980. I feel like I'm 1800s born, but anyway. <laughs> um, uh, the, uh, there was less than a hundred left in California. And there was a little population behind Santa Barbara. So I volunteered for the Forest Service and I would go over in the morning. And I, I've always had this innate, you know, sixth sense of finding bird nests. Finding bird nests for me, I don't know why, is real simple. So I would go and find these nests of the least bells vario and I count the nests, count the eggs. And that's what I do in the morning. And then the afternoon was kind of like my own time. The Forest Service was paying for the truck and the gas and I was putting in the time. So I sit there and I, I was photographing all the birds, this little riparian zone, found a nest I could safely photograph, photographed it. And literally my first text photo package, an article was published the exact same month. The least bells burial was listed as endangered. Uh, that very same month, uh, some people saw that article able to save some habitat and the fish and wildlife service, Carla called me up and said, Hey, you know, you probably saved this bird from extinction. And that was just one photograph in one article that that happened. And th that um, you could say was a huge spark. It was a massive burden. Um, it's a, a driving force to know that one photograph can uh, make that kind of a, a difference on our world. That's why I've always been such a huge proponent of, of sharing of printing our images, giving away prints, and, and, and now putting images on the uh, platforms we have available because you have no idea um, the impact that photograph might have. On the flip side, uh, I just got another email um, earlier this week from another person who said, you know, 
when I was seven years old, I just loved your photography. And now I'm a father of, you know, two kids. I'm like, oh, great. You know, so uh, I'm that old, but I had that kind of influence. So it's, uh, you know, it's a two-edged sword. Yeah. I felt like that when, um, when, you know, I used to teach guitar um, as a full-time job. And, uh, and I remember one of the kids I taught from when he was literally this, you know, this tall. He now got a job for the same music service as a guitar teacher. You kind of go, whoa, okay, I'm much older than I thought I was. You know, I told you when you were a kid. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, that's uh, okay. That's, that's how it's supposed to work. Yeah, exactly. If you do it correctly, that's how it should work. Um, so, what was your like? What was your favorite um, uh, animal or critter, as you call them? Uh, what was your favorite uh, animal that you photographed? Actually, that's a pretty common question, and it's it's one that's kind of hard for me to answer. Mm. I used to say it was you know the one that would hold still for me, <laughs> and then for a while I would say you know it's the one I'm currently working on, and and now you know I don't have a valid answer to that. There, um, our wild heritage is 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 incredibly vast, and they all have unique stories that uh, make them special, at least to me. So I'm constantly in flux. The project I worked the longest with with was the Salmon King Kit Fox there in the Central Valley that um, just a marvelous little critter, very much endangered, that I was very fortunate to be there with my camera when many biological things unfolded for the first time that I could photograph it and then share. one of my favorite stories comes from just that back in 2000. I'm, I'm sitting literally in a pit over 100 degree temperature, uh, D1 with a 428, looking at a, a hole in the ground, which is my specialty. <laughs> when little fuzz heads emerged and they were four weeks old, it was the youngest that they'd ever seen pups emerge from a den. I was photographing away with a D1 and got back, and then I'm sending out these pictures to a bunch of biologists around the globe of this whole thing. And the response was, wow, you got, you know, four week old pups. That's just amazing. The response was, how come I were seeing these pictures when you just took them two hours ago? What's with that? You know, because <laughs> uh, digital was, you know, 2000 mm. wasn't around, especially with a 428 and, you know, the, what you could produce photographically look like what you're shooting or normally, you know, would need, you know, film for. And then after we got through the digital questions, then we got to, wow, you've shot four week old pups. So the kit Fox has always been there for me and I've always tried to to be there for it. Um, But gosh, you know, I love everything. There's not, there isn't a critter that's that, that I haven't photographed that I haven't fallen in love with either for that period of time or, or still am. But you've, I mean, you've done, you've, you've done this for so long. I bet you've, um, you've witnessed um, a lot of changes in the environment since then. And, uh, and, and the impact of, you know, climate change. Um, like, what would you say to somebody who just doesn't believe that climate change is real even? You're going to bring up climate change. You got to realize I I think about it, look at it a whole lot different than what you might see in popular print. Mm -hmm. The world is constantly changing, right? It's not like it's frozen in time. So the 
climate is constantly changing. What we have done is vastly accelerated that change and vastly changed its impact to where a lot of things are having a hard time as far as critters to keep up with that change. It wasn't like we started it. We just really accelerated it vastly, you know, and changed its impact. With that said, um, being a California native and spending so much time in California, we spent a lot of time the first two decades, Sharon and I, uh, along with a lot of biologists, saving little pieces of California for this critter or that critter to which to eke out its living. Because they were kind of in California, they're very specialized. California still has this incredible biodiversity within its borders that you, you this rivals places like Africa all within the California border. There's just a huge biodiversity, but they all have very small niches. And when you remove that niche, they're gone. That's why they become extinct. So for 20 years, we worked very hard to save a lot of those spots. And those spots we're saving from literally from human impact, be it degrading the, the, the habitat to completely, uh, you know, obliterating the habitat. If you don't have, um, David Attenborough, you know, to sit there and, and take you through his lifetime of all he's seen. And if you, you can't uh, wrap yourself around what he's saying, what you're, you're seeing visually and believe it, then I don't think there is a hope. And for me personally, then you're going to get in the dark area where while a lot of people think there's a lot of chance of things coming back. And while I've seen things like the Palos Verde Blue Butterfly, uh, something that was thought to be extinct for over a decade reappear. I don't think that's going to happen on a, on a vast scale for so many things that are and have disappeared and things that are changing. Uh, it's uh, it, and right now we live, and you can, this applies to photography as much as anything else in such a short term gratification kind of window that planning for something to make a difference for 10 years out, you don't see that happening, right? To be really honest. So there's so much going on and we're so focused in on our own little um, very important issues that, that that global issue, it's hard to anybody grasp. I, 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 while I don't uh, appreciate or, 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 or um, really welcome people's anti-climate change attitude, I can understand it. You find that um, governments nowadays like today are more focused on on these issues to do with the environment or, or do you do you feel like it's kind of gone the wrong way a little bit See, now you're, you're getting into areas where this is why moose's is, photography is so important because you ask about him and things get you know you could get on the err uh, because as soon as you say the word government to me the government is the people mm -hmm. right the government sure. is the people in those buildings are put there by the people so the people don't get involved, then the government, how would you expect them to really do what we want if we don't get involved in it, right? So it's, there's a lot involved in it. I, I can't point my finger to any one entity or, or government. Uh, it's, it's a society as a whole, which is why I call it our wild heritage. It belongs to all of us. It doesn't belong to any one person. Is there, is there any any particular um, animal that has so far eluded you completely? 
Like it's, it's something that you've always tried to like photograph, and you've just it's just never happened. Yeah, uh, I I've, I affectionately call it the bastard, uh, <laughs> the white-tailed hare. Right. And uh, we don't have them right here at the ranch. I had them at the home there in the Sierras. Mm-hmm. I spent one. I mean, this is the first winter I've not been out in snowshoes chasing that son of a bitch or the the bastard. And they are here in um, the Bitterroots where I live now. And I look forward to being able to get out and 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 finding where they're at and see if I can't change that. Because I, I literally have two pictures. Right. Uh, one picture is it looking at me. The second one is it's hopping away. So all I see is it's ours. So that has eluded me. And there's species I would love to photograph and spend time with. Yeah. And when I say time, I'm not talking about, you know, a couple hours. I'm talking about a couple of years. Mm. One of them would be the black-footed ferret. The other one would be the swimming Are critters that are fascinating to me, have a biology that is really intriguing. Mm-hmm. And photographically, be really a cool challenge. Yeah. Lisa, what was that last animal you said there? We had a little connection issue just for a split second. What was the second one? Swift fox. Swift fox. Mm-hmm. Really not well known. Um, it actually lives right up the road. And I had tried for years to get in with with that uh, project without any success. So, yeah, maybe now I'm, I'm uh, a local. Uh, I might get more success. How does, um, or, or well, more to the point, does your approach to wildlife photography change based on the animal that you're trying to shoot wait i'll rephrase that i don't want to say animal you're trying to shoot because that doesn't come across particularly well does it? <laughs> so the animal you're trying to photograph does your approach change it hasn't um okay. actually uh my approach has been the same since day one uh, you know first and foremost i don't think any photograph is worth sacrificing the welfare of the subject mm-hmm. you know it's it's hard enough for them without pressure of of a a lens and a person pushing them. So that very simple thing is I let the critters come to me. So I do my homework. I do the basics still that I've I've always talked about. I read all I can in the scientific journals from those who are trained professionals at observing and and writing down what they see. And then I, I do watch what I can as far as uh, video movies, n- knowing that a lot of it has been contrived, it's not, uh, oh, I sat down and looked, here comes an ape, you know, with a, a branch grabbing, you know, a lot of stuff is, you know, a bit on the uh, nature fake side. Mm-hmm. But I do watch how the critter reacts to the camera, how it reacts to the environment, how light reacts to it. And I, I put that all somewhere back in the subconscious. And then I go out, like I tell people, the one thing I'm the best of in, in this whole planet is sitting on a rock and staring at a hole for 18 hours, waiting for something to happen. And I have absolutely no problem doing that, being entertained by watching the world unfold in front of me keeps me there. And then knowing I'm going to get skunked, as in come back with nothing, I've done that. I still do that. That's still part of the process. And that yeah, I can I I get skunked as much doing aviation work as I do wildlife work, uh, so it's it's part of the process, and it just makes when success happens that much sweeter. Mm-hmm. 
think you really have to have a real passion for um, for wildlife and the outdoors, and in order to to really invest this much into creating those images and and um, you know and, and in developing uh, you know the patience and the like, what would you call it? Like the sheer ability to like to sit right. for 14, 18 hours and and look at a hole in the ground. <laughs> you know? Well, people people always think I have a lot of patience, and I just always tell them, just ask my two sons. You know, I don't have patience, but <laughs> uh, the passion to sit there and watch is you know infinite, as far as I'm concerned. And and I can uh, be honest with you, I'm here at the ranch, and I have projects that I need to be doing, and I have. Absolutely, I just I blow time just sitting here watching the critters. We um, we came here and we did I did my usual thing uh, is putting out boxes for them to have uh, a place to live and food. And I built a my first water feature, which is a a little like fifteen square foot pond. It's very shallow; it's only three inches shallow or deep. But there was nothing like that in this area, and instantly these critters are sucked in. And so we have, I literally have one white tailed deer that when she sees me walk out the door, she runs over to me. Uh, I've got uh, birds at the wazoo. Uh, we have 54 species already we've seen here on, on the property. So getting stuff done is challenging. We you just stop and I just watch them and uh, the flow of life intrigues the bejiggers out of me. Yeah. Do you get distracted easily when you see like an animal go to go? Oh, <laughs> Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. The uh, one of the common comments that comes to me is, you know, where do I find the time? And if people really saw me and saw how much you could say I waste time, just sitting and watching and 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 just thinking through what is happening in front of me, they would really wonder how I get anything done. Is it? Do you, do you come across, um, or have you come across uh, any any animal that you that you hadn't seen before that you can't identify? Can't identify, no. Might take me a little bit to to, to identify, yeah. Uh, some, some birds, I don't, you know, I've seen a, a lot of birds, some of them very briefly. So when I see them the second time, I have to think about it. But it comes to little mammals, because I do a lot of work with mice and gophers and shrews and stuff. It takes me a little bit of time to, to key them out, I mean, to, to properly say this is, you know, this particular shrew. We just had a little connection glitch there again for some reason. You know, it happens. Um, and it, it kind of uh, always makes me chuckle. People get so impatient when, not you folks, but some get very impatient when we have a glitch in, in technology <laughs> in this. And, you know, I've done presentations for decades. And I remember like when the table uh, of a, a leg on a table gave out and I'm in the front, I see my projector sliding off this table as the table goes off. And I'm going, and I run back and I catch the projectors before they fall off the table. I've had screens uh, come unravel during a presentation. I've had sound systems go with big puffs of smoke. So, you know, this thing of perfection, I don't get it because I've never ever witnessed or uh, experienced perfection in my career. So I don't know why people think it's going to happen now. I always have to remind myself that you know, when I was a kid and anybody told me back then that one day you'd be able to talk to another person in real time 
like somebody who's on the other side of the planet, you can have a conversation and actually see them. I would have said that's total science fiction. That's never going to happen. Not in my lifetime. <laughs> <laughs> and then there was Skype. You know, well, it, for me, it's even it. So right now, I'm talking to you via Starlink. Mm -hmm. So I'm beaming literally from my house to a satellite to wherever, to wherever, to wherever, to to you guys. And I remember, because uh, I'm old, like I mentioned, um, the uh, when I I've done a lot of work with with people in England. My stock only stock agency is there in in London. And I remember back in the days when we would mail uh, via post images, slides to England for all this process. They didn't even go by plane. They went by boat, you know. Mm -hmm. So um, uh, this whole thing, I'm the guy that looks at that Epson P7000. I'm still going, how's that print? How's that print? How's that print? Because it's just amazing to me. <laughs> That's phenomenal. <laughs> um so let's talk a little bit about your uh, aviation photography because it's the other thing um, that you do. And um, I was looking at some of your aviation uh, images um, only last week, and it's what immediately strikes me is that photographically it's such a different um, style. And of course, on one hand, you might say, "Well, it's photography. Photography is photography," but um, it's. This, you know, I always get that sense when I look at your wildlife um, images that there's there's a really natural um, sort of look about it. They don't seem, you know, when you look at wildlife uh, images on, on Instagram, you get a really good idea what, what like overprocessed imagery imagery looks like. <laughs> if you know what I mean? And uh, I know this is very different when I when I look at your imagery. Um, and then you know, um, when I look at your your aviation uh, imagery, they're like. They're really so perfect. It's like how do you how do you create those images, particularly particularly when you're photographing um, these planes in flight? Well, it's, it's I appreciate the kind words, but actually, it's it's easier than you think. Mm. Um, so, aviation for me is a combination of landscape and and wildlife photography. You know, the the plane has to live somewhere, and that's the landscape. That's the background in the picture, and the plane itself is the the critter, the motion, uh, the story. So it's, uh, and it all comes down to the, the one simple thing called light, right? That's what photography is all about, is how we, we write a story with that light. Now, the, the aircraft itself, I've always been an engineering nut. I, I love watching and looking and, and how things work. So you got this this steely thing, or in some cases wood, that breaks the bounds of gravity and that can do what it can do. It, it does it in each one, each aircraft does it in a very unique way. Uh, the flow of air over a wing is, is kind of, you know, the basics, but each one does that a little differently. And understanding that, again, just knowing your subject, it's not hard for me to, to then photograph them, just watching that light and watching that 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 engineering you know magic come to life how did you get into that was it just literally just a matter of being interested in it and that drew you to um to shooting it or or was there another uh, driver to that you know people give me a lot of credit to being this genius to figure this stuff out and doing it the right time but yeah there's no genius here it's all luck it just so happened, you know, I mean, I have a father that uh, was a World War II and Korean vet. 
he took me to air shows. He flew the, you know, the bug was set in me long ago. I've always loved it. Never thought about it as a photographic pursuit though. And then when the Nikon D3 came out at the same time, a good friend of mine with Nikon was at the Reno air races, which was just literally a three hour drive from our home. And Sharon and I said, yeah, we should go do it someday. And we never, you know, made it a priority, which bad habit. This particular year, Scott was there and I said, hey, uh, if you can get me in, I'll come up and volunteer and I'll help people understand the new D3 because that it had a lot of incredibly new technology. I did, I went up, did all that. D3 is hand holding a 500 F4, uh, panning with something moving in the air, birds, right? So just different kind of feathers. So I, getting sharp images was not a challenge for me, especially without cropping. You know, what you see is what I, I don't crop uh, in post. It's what you see is what I shot. It's, it's always been there with me. It's something new. And that very first time, very first year, put in images like, you know, you're supposed to is, you know, and then I got the poster. Uh, so it was like, wow, I, I, I'm, I'm, you know, 50 feet from something going 400 miles an hour photographing and it just, it just all clicked and just using the same basics that I always have, it just propelled me. Now, fortunately for me, I, I, I lucked into meeting uh, another dear mentor is no longer with us. And Bob, uh, one thing that he did for me that up to that point in time, I would never do. And, and he instilled in me the fact that he, this is the guy who restored two super Corsairs, an incredible person, human being. And I said, I love your plane. He goes, well, they're not my planes. They belong to everybody. I'm just a current custodian. And so I, I share it with everybody. And from that, I took that the, you know, what I was doing need to be shared. So everything I've ever done with aviation has been shared with, with Bob and mine. I know you, um, you produced a, a film called Warbirds and the men who flew them. I, can you tell us a little bit about, about that project? Cause that sounds extremely interesting. Well, it was, um, Scott Kelby has been a dear friend forever. Um, he's just a, a great guy and human being and Kelby one, uh, puts out a lot of, uh, really great classes. I've been fortunate to do a number of them. And Scott and I were talking and I said, I really would like to do this documentary, which Kelby one had not done to that point in time. And it was my second uh, one. And I was very fortunate at the same time to be working with the Texas Flying Legend Museum, an incredibly gifted group of, of pilots with some amazing aircraft and with the support of, of Scott Kelby. And then the chief pilot, Warren, who's a really dear friend of ours, I simply came up with the idea. And, and you got to understand that I come up with a lot of ideas. It's kind of like what Einstein says. We all come up with five great ideas every day. We just don't act on them. And I learned that long ago. So I have, if you look around, I mean, I have Excel spreadsheets for all my notes just to find them all. Because I've, I've constantly come up with ideas, and this is one of them. I wanted to, to celebrate flight, I want to celebrate this museum with their aircraft. And most importantly, I want to celebrate the men behind them, the men from, you know, the World War II, the, gen the greatest generation, because they did so much to give us the freedoms to do a Zoom today, for example. So how could I do all those things? I wanted to take pictures of aircraft. I wanted to fly them. I want to talk about these great pilots today 
honoring those gentlemen and I want to honor those gentlemen. From that came up with a script. Uh, very fortunate that the museum was uh, picked up the cost for flying all those aircraft, had a home base where I had all, all those vets available. And then Scott brought in the cr very talented crew in which created, you know, Warbirds, the men who flew them. The, the opportunity that Scott and Warren uh, made possible uh, to make that documentary. And then the fact that I had all of the uh, vets at this event that I could sit there and interview for that presentation. And almost all those vets, uh, vets I had already known, they were already uh, people that were uh, friends, associates. So having that all at one point made that whole documentary happen. And it's a documentary that's had quite a longevity. And I I still get, I got just a couple of days ago, another note from somebody who um, had seen that, the Warbirds and men who flew it, and was very much touched by it. And it was reaching out because of their father being a, a World War II vet. And sadly, almost all those vets as far as I can remember, all those vets, but one has already passed. Mm. So it's, 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 you know, the whole thing, um, the aviation, it's, it's, a it's part of why we're able to be here right now. And it, it fascinates me just like critters. I mean, the fastest airplane that was back in the thirties was designed by a farm boy who never flew uh, until he built the, that plane. Uh, and he got inspired by a plane that he's seen barnstorming. I mean, that's the power of visuals to me that you can, you can change the world. And I think it's a story that more people need to understand. Where can, um, where could our listeners um, find that documentary to be able to watch it themselves? That and many of my classes are on Kelby one. So Kelby one. There's another class um, I came across another, another class of yours um, on Kelby one, which is, all has to do with photographing Yosemite. Okay. And uh, it, that's that really um, uh, struck me. I, I, I might actually sign up for that class myself, really, because um, I, my wife and I, uh, we went to Yosemite on our honeymoon, and um, cool. and that was that was quite special because I'm, uh, you know, I've always been really a fan of, of black and white photography, and I've always been a fan of of Ansel Adams, and you know, being there in Yosemite, like where it all happened, was you know, was for me, from a photography point of view, was quite a thing. My wife. Not so much. <laughs> she was really into the photography thing, but um, but it was it's just like one of these special places, you know. Um, so well, you know, Yosemite has that kind of lure. Most people don't realize that Yosemite is there because of a photographer. Mm. Uh, it, and this photographer, you know, Watkins sat there and took a whole lot of photographs that went to Congress, and that's how it got actually made into a national park. Yeah, that's right. Um, and as a good friend of mine used to say, you know, if John Muir didn't have the foresight to preserve Yosemite, we wouldn't have it to enjoy today. Yeah. And the question is, do we have the foresight to save what we have today for future generations? How did you how did you first get involved with uh, with Kelby One? It would have been the second ever Photoshop World. Mm -hmm. uh, at that, Nikon had a, a big presence, and so at the same time, uh, we had what was called Digital Landscape Workshop Series, one of the most successful photographic workshops that ever came. And this it started back in 2001, and it was there to help people, you know, move from, from film to digital and understand that 
not much had really changed, just went from analog to digital. Mm. Everything else was kind of the same. And my co-instructor, uh, Vincent Versace, was at that time very much uh, in with uh, uh, Epson and Nikon. And he said, you should come to this event, be good for you, and uh, expand stuff. I went there and went up to Scott and said, hey, hi. And uh, he goes, who are you? And uh, we talked briefly. And then me being me, I'm, I can be pretty persistent. I kind of followed up. And Scott and I became fast friends and have been ever since. Uh, he's uh, he's just a marvelous human being, and he's always been a, a very support supportive person of of Moose and and Sharon. So I've been with him ever since, and that's that's a long time now. It's uh, almost twenty years. One of the most fascinating things about that platform, uh, Kevin, one for, for me is uh, just to see the sheer talent that he managed to like, accumulate there. Uh, we spoke to David Williams um, uh, only a few weeks ago, um, and, and that was, uh, you know, in terms of uh, landscape photography, that was just uh, you know another another kind of eye opener, you know. Um, I think for both of us, really, it really was yeah. because uh, because landscape photography is not um, it's not really some you know it's not where like where we come from photographically we um you know i'm a, I'm a commercial photographer so i do a lot I, I photograph people predominantly uh most of the time um but of course there's there's always a great interest to expand and you know to get better and to to try out different avenues you know and to try out different things um and very often of course you know over time you build up these uh preconceived ideas of what a particular type of photography might be like and it's very interesting when you, then you speak to somebody who has you know this this wealth of experience, and it just shatters everything that you thought was true, <laughs> you know, in your own head, sort of thing. And you kind of go, you know what? Let's just forget about all that. You know, I need to get into this. I need to actually give this a shot. Um, and more often than not, um, I think we've both like realized that you know, it's it's really well worth doing, and it's it's extremely um, beneficial because a lot of the stuff. It's interesting. A lot of the things that we did yesterday when we went out uh, on, on our little um, street street photography trip, I'm already thinking to integrate some of that into some of my portrait work. So there's yeah. a lot of there's a lot of crossover um, in that, and I, really that never occurred to me beforehand. You know, um, so so it's it's a really interesting uh, interesting experience. And what you said earlier about when you when we we're talking about aviation photography, and you said um, it's basically like landscape photography with a plane in it. That was uh, that actually was something that that um, hit home. Both Nick and me started photographing cars during you know during the pandemic. We couldn't photograph any people, obviously. Um, so we started photographing cars, and it was you know it was it was super fun. We learned a, a number of new techniques um, to do this. So we light painted and uh, and this like, long exposure kind of imagery and stuff. And it was really really fun, um, and. It wasn't until we spoke to an automotive photographer, he said, like, look, automotive photography is like landscape photography with a car in it. <laughs> but, you know, when it comes to the cars, you've got one of the best in the world right there in, in London, Tim Wallace. You should check him out. Yes, Tim Wallace. That's the name I've come across. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, he's, it's, he's just brilliant and just a great guy. Yeah. It's, in fact, um, we're always, you know, we're always um, asking our friends, our friends, our friends. And our guests on the program to suggest um, 
some somebody else to uh, to interview. Uh, Tim Wallace would would certainly be somebody who would be very interested. Um, Tim would be a great resource for you. Yeah, Tim Moose said you must come on the post <laughs> on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so, what's your what is your plan for? I was going to say for the rest of 2020, but we're almost at the end of 2020. What's what's your uh, your plan for 2021? It's not anything different. We've still been operating like we did in the pandemic. We'll do some more workshops we call adventures. I have uh, some classes to do to create for Kelby One. Have a new documentary to start filming in April, and hopefully start another one next fall. So it's um. Not much grass grows underneath my feet. I'm constantly moving and pushing things forward. What are the sort of working conditions like at the moment um, over in the U.S.? Do you, do you find it's um, is it relatively straightforward for you to, to get on with your projects, or um, is is the whole uh, pandemic making it quite difficult at the moment? It's not. It hasn't made it quite difficult at all. It's. You know, it's to be really honest, you wear a mask, you wash your hands a lot, and mm. you stay a little bit distant from people. So uh, I might use a little bit longer lens than I did because I like to shoot with wide angles when, with working with people and, and projects to relate to the background with the, the person. But no, it hasn't. Um, the I guess the, the the one challenge is the fact that so many eateries, you can't have a big group at the table, and a lot of them, uh, especially right now, inside dining has now been shut down again. So it uh, means eating more meals in a vehicle or or something. So uh, it's like any other challenge that we've gone through many challenges, and the, you just you've you you. Use your common sense, and you suck it up, and you keep moving it forward. And I, I, that's just the way that I am. You know, it's it's. What else you can do? You you can't just sit and be a lump on a couch because that gets you nowhere. So you get up and keep going. Yeah, Netflix can only take you so far. <laughs> that's what we've realized. <laughs> that's not really my. People always ask me about sports. Like, I don't have that luxury of time. I, I don't. I don't follow sports and yeah a lot of stuff that's people talk about binging i haven't seen yeah well i mean it's, you know in in the uk um when the first lockdown happened in most of the beginning of april something like end of march, march yeah. yeah end of march it was really quite extreme it was literally full-on lockdown and nothing was happening anymore schools were shut you know um businesses were shut everything was just uh was just shut and uh, and that literally forced you to stay at home because you weren't really allowed to go outside either, you know. So uh, this, that was extremely tricky. And uh, and so you were almost forced. What well, I mean to start with, it felt like you were almost forced to basically just sit and and, and do nothing. And something interesting happened um, a few weeks into it. Uh, we used to get messages from from friends and other photographers both kind of you know both enthusiasts and and some professionals saying like i haven't picked up my, my camera's still in the back i haven't picked my camera mm -hmm. up in four weeks and you know uh, and we thought well 
wouldn't it be a good idea to just to just create like a, a group, like a Zoom group, you know, where once a week we meet up, we talk about it. Everybody seems to have the same problem. You know, maybe we come up with some creative ideas or stuff that you can do. I mean, even if even if your main gig is to um, shoot in a studio, maybe there's stuff that you can do at home, you know, ideas that you can come up with just to kind of get the creative juices um, flowing. And even if and at the time, you know, we were, I think we were allowed out for an hour or something like that. It was really uh, draconian almost. Um, but, you know, even if, if that's all you can do, you can go for a walk in the park or something, take your long lens. And if you've never shot birds before, photographed birds before, you know, then maybe this might just be the time, you know. Um, and that really turned into a little, almost like a little community of um, of people. And I think it, um, it, it helped to, you know, in, in its own little way, I think it helped people cope with the whole thing. Um, a lot better, which is really, you know, yeah. it was uh, quite a number of people, I think, decided actually took that advice on board and got out and got their camera out and did something different. You know, they, and like you say, they kept creative and probably learned something new at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. Because we were, you know, we would, every week we would talk on Zoom about different things that you could do, different ideas. And some of the work that came out of that was actually um, nothing short um, of, of astonishing, mm-hmm. like finding light pockets in your house, you know. Um, photographing animals in your garden, and you know, and then every week we'd hear stories about like, hey, I lay in there for five hours and I try to <laughs> get that darn bird, you know, <laughs> uh, or something like that, or you know, um, and it was yeah, it was it was really really good fun. So excellent, excellent, you know. So it's just a, you know, it goes to show that that there's always something that you can do, even when it seems like you know you're you're being somehow restricted, but uh, and very often it's it's a good time to maybe just take a step back, take stock, you know, and figure out how to do things differently. And maybe that's, you know, for the better um, in the end. As long so, as you have light, you have photography. That's right. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. That should be the title of this episode. I think so. Yeah. <laughs> awesome. All right. Great. Uh, Moose, it was an absolute pleasure having you on the show. Um, I know that a lot of people... Um, in my local camera club will absolutely love watching this episode um, because there are a lot of um, wildlife uh, enthusiasts. Thank you so much to agreeing to come on this uh, podcast. Um, well, been- thank you for asking me. I've totally enjoyed it. So very much appreciate it. Absolutely. And uh, we wish you all the best of luck for 2021. And um, you know, we're really looking forward to, to, seeing, to seeing more of you and your, your photography. And just just for for our listeners, Moose, um, can you just remind all our listeners what the name of your podcast is, so they can go subscribe and 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 check that out if they haven't heard it already. Moose's podcast. I, I keep it simple. Love it, love it. Um, so if you're interested in uh, in uh, listening to uh, Moose's podcast, you will find the all the details and the links and everything in the description. Um, and again, if um, you know, show some love and uh, head over there and um, subscribe and give it uh, give it a nice star rating. Um, and whilst you're at it, uh, if you are listening to this on Apple Podcasts, you can scroll all the way down. If you're on the show page, scroll all the way down and uh, you can uh, you can leave a uh, a review. Is a, I think is what they call it, isn't it? A review and yeah. a, and a rating. Star That's rating. right. That would help us out because the more reviews you have, the easier it is for your uh, for the show to be found. Um, that's how they do it this way. So it would be really uh, phenomenal if people would leave a comment. 
Yeah, it'd be great. Oh, the other thing, before I forget, we always we always shout out a, uh, a listener. So if you're the person listening to us in Durban, South Africa, is that how you say it? Uh, I'm going to go, yes. Okay. <laughs> if you're the person <laughs> listening to us in South Africa, please get in touch. It'd be amazing just to see um, who you are and what you're doing uh, when you're listening to this podcast. It'd be phenomenal. Um, we always we always do this. We always shout out some uh, some listeners. We have a little like in the analytics thing. There's a little map, like a world map, and you can see where people are when they listen to the show. And it's since we started this uh, this podcast, uh, it's been really uh, entertaining to see it grow and to see where people are when they listen it when they listen to it. So we uh, we like to uh, shout people out and to see if they get in touch and uh, let us know who they are. Um, so if you're in South Africa and you listen to this, uh, then please get in touch, and hopefully uh, we'll get a message from you at some point this week. Mm-hmm.